Well, as you well know, one of the things that we face in, in our culture is, is the temptation to always put our best, best foot forward, that um, we are a very image-oriented society, and we like to project strength even when um, that projection doesn't match what's inside. In fact, most of the time it seems like it doesn't. We're playing an, uh, a Wizard of Oz kind of scenario in which we have a lot of smoke and mirrors and, 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 uh, and curtains, but, but behind those curtains is very frail people just trying to keep up the, the pretense of, of strength. Um, and that is a manifestation, I think, of human pride and, um, and is deceitful at its core um, and is very unhealthy for the church, um, both in terms of us as individuals as well as a church, not to just be more or less open and honest about the fact that we have flaws and we have weaknesses um, and how refreshing it is. I know for me, when I hear somebody or I meet somebody who just is open about the fact that they aren't all that and are willing to um, show that they, have, they don't have it all together. That is refreshing, um, and I think it's honest. Now, honesty isn't necessarily all of us divulging all of our dirty details to each other. That's neither necessarily honesty, nor is it necessarily wise, but just a sense and attitude that, hey, you know what, um, we have weaknesses. We have weaknesses in individuals. We have weaknesses as a church, and not to, to state that is to, to create that front, which is deceptive. Um, but by the same token, on the other side, I think it's also deceptive not to acknowledge where God is doing great things and where there are strengths and where he is moving. Because when we fail to acknowledge, hey, despite the fact that there are weaknesses, which we pray by the grace of God and by the um, effort that he uh, moves in us by his grace um, to overcome, that at the same time he is also working. And to look at that. And to acknowledge it and say, God, you're doing great things. And if we fail to look and acknowledge that God's doing great things, we fail to uh, feel gratitude and thanksgiving, and we fail to give him glory for, for some of the things that he's done. And for my part, very personally, this is just how I feel, and I hope others share this same sentiment and feeling, is that I'm, I'm excited about some of the things that I see and directions I see God moving in our, our not just our church, but broader than our church. And, um, and that is in the, in the direction of compassion. Uh, you've already heard from Pete um, about the, the Levin ministry. No one would have ever guessed that the convergence of all those things would bring about something that has just taken off to the point where other churches are involved and other churches are looking to get involved and there's a replication of sites. And it's, it's as if God is saying, yes, this is the direction. And he has blessed it, uh, this ministry of compassion. And it's, 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 a, it's a blessing that is being carried by more than just one church and experienced by more than one church. And I think that's a movement of God and we should be able to say that's awesome and feel the excitement of it. I also think it's interesting on a, on, a, on, a, on a different track, simultaneous to this, and right alongside that under the banner of Mission Solano, the churches of Fairfield had rallied and been able to care for and feed those who were jobless and homeless. And that's a, a ministry shared by the Christian community in and, and two different directions of compassion, one to kids showing love to kids, not just love, the love of Jesus to kids uh, through tutoring, and also to share and show the love of Jesus through feeding and giving a shelter for people. I mean, that's, I think, is pretty monumental movement of what the Lord's doing. And I, I think we should be able to look back and say, wow, that is a divine mark and something that God is doing. And, and it should excite us and spur us on um, to continue praying and seeking out and seeking more because our community, as you well know, is, is, a, is a dark place. 
Well, it's this, this topic of compassion that I've been thinking a lot about, and it ties in directly to what Levin is all about, is trying to show compassion. By the way, I should say, and perhaps it doesn't need to be said, but I, I think it needs to be said, that one of the challenges of something taking off is the pressure to make it a Christless ministry. Um, and one of the challenges that we face, and I'm, I'm confident based upon those who are the watchmen leading these different ministries, guys like Ron Marlette and so forth and, and Pete, that, that we will not forget why we're doing what we're doing or in whose name we're doing it. Uh, for me personally, when people say that it's a Christian-based ministry, that doesn't quite do it for me, as if Jesus is in Christianity is in the basement and unseen. Um, the Jesus I know in the Bible and the God I know in the Bible wants his glory to be seen, which means where there is no Jesus prominent, it is not truly Christian ministry. Um, so that is the challenge, and I hope you'll continue to pray. I know that it's going to go that direction. I'm confident in the leadership that it's going to go that direction because that is, that is the direction Jesus wants it to go, the compassion of Christ shared through tangible means of tutoring and through the feeding of the homeless. So let me just reflect for a few moments as we come to, to uh, the Lord's table um, on compassion, and this really truly is a, a reflection. A reflection is a probing and a thinking and a pondering of, of, a, of a topic, um, and that is uh, compassion. Um, this amazing word we find scattered throughout Scripture. What is it? Who's responsible for it? Um, how important is it? Well, in my, my meditations upon the scriptures, I've been plodding through Psalms, and um, I came to Psalm 82, and I found myself hovering around verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 82. And let me, let me back up and read it, because it has to do with compassion. There the psalmist writes, and he's speaking primarily to people in leadership positions, people of power, people of authority. He says, God presides in the great assembly. In other words, he is ultimately the sovereign judge. He gives judgment among the gods, and that's quote-unquote, people who think they have power. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And by the unjust and unwicked, he's primarily talking about the rich um, and the powerful um, who are taking advantage of the poor. That is, they are arrogant in their wealth. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And then here, here, here are his injunctions. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. His injunction to people of means and power is to defend, maintain, and rescue. That is one of the aspects of compassion. And this, I think, pictures compassion. Uh, justice and compassion. They're both, I think, in many ways uh, synonymous. That is, that one of the ministries of compassion is, is to defend those who are truly powerless and truly helpless, those who can't defend themselves, those who have no appeal, no recourse, no advocate. That's part of, of, of compassion, is, is defending. Another aspect of compassion that he also draws on here has to do with deliverance, and that is... Um, for those people who have means and are, have the power and have um, the means of help, the capacity to actually help deliver people out of their helpless circumstances. That is um, a picture of compassion in some of its different components. Basically, helping and assisting those who are powerless and those who do not have the capacity to take care of or help themselves. 
an orphan, of course, of course, being one great example. An orphan in ancient times, obviously an orphan is one without parents, but in ancient times that would have been um, uh, tragic because with a loss of parents, would become there would be loss of inheritance. Um, they would have no legal rights to speak of, and they're completely and utterly at the mercy of anybody who would bring them in, clothe them, feed them, and, and uh, give them a shelter over their heads. In other words, they're completely helpless. That is... The people in view in verse uh, in chapter 82, weak, fatherless, um, poor, uh, needy, and so forth. They are completely powerless. And I think there's an important um, distinction that needs to be made when we think about what compassion is. Um, if I was to kind of bring it down to a single definition, it would be this, and it certainly doesn't cover everything. But it would be um, that those who have the capacity to the help helping those who do not have the capacity to help themselves. That is, one has the capacity, the other doesn't, and they help. Now, that's an important definition, I think, to keep in mind because it enables us to distinguish between two groups of people that we oftentimes meet in our culture. There are those who truly are powerless and helpless and have no capacity to help themselves. Then there is another group who um, have the capacity to help themselves but their preference and their choice is to live a life of need. Um, to the first group, they desperately do need help. To the second group, they choose a lifestyle of poverty or homelessness, though they have the capacity to live otherwise. Um, to the first group, who truly are powerless and helpless, um, there is this need for deliverance and compassion. To the second group, there is a need for love, but not a love that continues to prolong a sin of laziness. Uh, in my thinking, any kind of compassion which prolongs or perpetuates a sinful lifestyle, an unproductive lifestyle, in the end, it really isn't compassion or love. Well, what's in view here in chapter 82 of Psalms is those who truly are weak, truly are needy, those who can't protect themselves, those who do not have the capacity that is the ministry of compassion. It's looking for those who don't have the capacity to take care of themselves. And, and if you do have the ability and the resources, then you, you fulfill it and you take care of them. That's, that's more or less what compassion is. Another question is, so who is responsible for showing compassion? Now, in this particular chapter, it's obvious that the leaders, probably civic um, leaders, who are responsible for making sure that the rights of the poor are protected, the rights of the helpless are protected, that they're not taken advantage of. But I believe the mantle of compassion has also been laid on, on you and I as the church. Some of you really know this. But it helps, I think, to recognize the truth of what James says in chapter 1 and verse 27, namely that the purest form of Christian religion and faith is seen in compassion to the helpless and the powerless. What is it that he says there? He says that the religion that our God, our Father, accepts, and the religion is not just any religion. In his mind, there's only one true religion. That's the religion of Christ. But the religion that our Father accepts as faultless is this. What is it? To care for or look after orphans and widows. Orphans who have no capacity to help themselves and widows who have no legal rights to land or, or so forth. This is to help people who are legitimately 
in need. It is one of the purest demonstrations of Christian love for God's people, the Christians that James is talking to, to actually give themselves this kind of ministry, this kind of ministry of, of compassion. That if we have the capacity to do something for somebody who doesn't have the capacity, we should fill it when it's in our uh, purview to do. That is, who is responsible for it is, is Christian church. Compassion. And there are, and you know this, there are oceans of opportunities all around us. The Levin ministry is just one avenue. You, you know, people started to look, how can we actually meet the needs of a community and reach apartments? That's, that was the big word uh, phrase that we were using. How can we reach the apartments? And, and after some prayer, the tutoring is one way that we can show them in a tangible way that we love them. But there are so many others that abound all around us that I think are crying out for God's people to wake up and say, this is the ministry God has called us to, that really is the purest form of the Christian faith. That is taking up this mantle of, of compassion and, and filling the needs of people, provided again Jesus is at the center and we don't lose sight of the fact that ultimately it's the message that saves, not our work. But it is an amazing ministry, and there are oceans of opportunities. You hear the voices of, of countless unborn crying out for people to exercise the heart of compassion, to come alongside pregnant mothers, um, frightened, some scared, some simply just deceived, to encourage them to have their baby. That's a ministry of compassion, and one that is hauntingly missing, um, even here at Parkway. I wish, and this is a cry, that someone in our congregation or a group in our congregation would say, we want to herald the, the rights or the need and the cry of the unborn here, because that is a massive, a massive group of people, in my estimation and conviction, that don't have a voice. They cannot help themselves. And I hope someone feels called to that, uses their gifts to that, and says, I want to help Parkway keep that at the front burner so we can continue to pray about it, continue to serve in that way. You know, there are scores of people who line the halls of urine-scented carpet in convalescent homes who would just love to have someone come by periodically and say hi and touch them on the arm because they have absolutely been abandoned and they have no one around. Those are needs. are sons without fathers and daughters without mothers. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, and then there's those random opportunities where you find a little bent old woman at Safeway who's fruitlessly trying to shove her walker in the back of her car. Meanwhile, her groceries are spilled all over the, grocery, all over the asphalt, and there's no one to help. Those, those are distinct God-given opportunities for, for Christian people to step in and do one of the purest expressions of the Christian faith, namely to love orphans and widows, Love those who are in need, who can't give back. It's investing in somebody who has nothing to give back to you, which is why, in many respects, it's so pure. There's no compromise of, of, of motive. The only reason you do it is because God puts a compassion in your heart and because you know the Lord God of heaven smiles down and you'll get the joy from being able to do it. So it is a ministry of compassion that has been laid on the church. And it's interesting to me, historically, that long before the church, the first three centuries in the church's existence, uh, the church grew exponentially, perhaps. Well, I'm not going to say more than any other century, because um, I don't think that's true. But it grew exponentially long before it ever had reigns of power. Largely because it picked up this mantle 
of this ministry of compassion and took exposed babies out in the forest and up on the hills and took them as their own, who started orphanages and cared for slaves. That's what they did. That the Christian church can grow without having any access to political power. In fact, when she took political power, she often and still does fall on her face. As a corporate body, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the church has been laden with the responsibility of political power, ever. Now, a Christian like William Wilberforce might be called as an individual, and we each have a responsibility to vote for rights to protect people as individuals, but the corporate body of Christ is responsible for showing compassion. That's our mantra. That's one of the uniqueness or unique distinctives or should be of the Christian church. So compassion is having a capacity to care for a need for somebody who can't do it for themselves. That it is a, is a ministry that has been given to the, to the church, to those who bear the name of Jesus. And then the kind of last question that came to my mind was, so just how important is it? And to me, the importance of anything um, has to do with how it connects to God himself. That is, you find at the very heart of God, of the scripture, a heart of compassion. In other words, when the Christian church, you and I as individuals and as a corporate body, do things like leaven ministry or homeless ministry or we're helping an old lady put her walker into a car and picking up cans of soup and so forth, that that reflects the very heart of the God of the scriptures. From beginning to end, God keeps um, showing himself as a God who is compassionate, who, who cares and hears the cries of those who are helpless. Um, so, for example, you have the single mother named Hagar with her son Ishmael out in the desert about to die. She throws up her hands and God sees her and he has compassion on her. And he opens up a well and gives her water so she can live and so can her son. But God sees his people in bondage, in slavery, helpless and powerless against the might of, of Egypt. What does he do? He responds to their cries in compassion, stretches forth his arm and defends their cause. And then he withdraws and pulls them out to his own heart. That is a God of compassion. That while they were wandering in the wilderness, they were thirsty and God heard their cries and he broke open rocks and gave them water to drink. That they were hungry and he sent manna from heaven for food for them to eat because he has compassion. That when they were fearing the onslaughts and attacks from the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Syrians, that God stretched forth his hand and defended his people, showed compassion on them. That he doubles and multiplies the portions of oil and flour to, to simple but hospitable widows. I mean, that's, that's, that's the God of Scripture, is that he is compassionate. He is just, yes, and judgment comes, but not before a compassionate call comes out over and over and over, or before his hand keeps coming out saying, I will satisfy your need, I will satisfy your need, I will satisfy your need. And that dominant motif, and by the way, the calling card that God gave Moses. Moses, one cry, will you let me see your glory? And, and God says, well, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you, and you'll see the tail end. And in Exodus 34, records it, and there he sees God's glory pass by, but there are words connected with his glory. And the words are, and this is the declaration as to who the God of Scripture is, who Yahweh is, is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. The very first word that God uses to define himself to Moses as his glory passes by is, is the word compassion. As if that's one of the identifying marks of the God of Scripture, and it is. Because that motif of God's compassion continued to build and build and build until it found its final triumph of 
compassion, and you know where that is. Where God himself comes down, takes upon himself our sin because we were helpless and we were powerless, and then he gives us life. And that, that is the ultimate triumph of compassion, is Jesus himself. The table is a representation of the triumph of God's compassion over sin, over enemies. Most of us, again, forget that when he came to us, we were powerless and helpless. We were weak and we were needy and spiritually fatherless. That we were powerless against sin, helpless to overcome the condemnation that we innately feel we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna face one day. Powerless against our flesh. Powerless to resist this thing called death, despite the fact that we try and try and try and we cryogenically freeze our bodies. We can't keep it from happening. And ultimately, under the grip of this one the Bible calls the evil one or the devil or the dragon, and God looks at the situation of people in prison, and he says, I'm going to liberate them from their sin, from their flesh, and from the evil one. And so he does, and that is the cross. But the amazing thing about God's compassion is that he just didn't deliver us. That's the ministry of Jesus, to preach release to the captives and to, pre, to, to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And that has a deeper spiritual dimension, as you well know, that we were spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, and spiritually dead, and spiritually imprisoned. And Jesus' ministry was to come and liberate us as an act of compassion. But it's... Also, the compassion seen in what he delivered us to. As I said, I've been plodding through the Psalms, and there is this image that the psalmist uses that I think captures everything that Jesus has won for us. I believe it's Psalm 84, it might be 85, where the psalmist says this, listen to this. He said, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing praise to your name. And I started thinking about the house. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. In psalmist's mind, that was the temple, a place that you would only go to, and largely on the outskirts of, only a few people were allowed into. But then you would leave and go back to your home. And he's saying, but blessed is the, the one who gets to dwell there, like gets to live there, like that's their home address. They never have to leave. That would be... Completely and utterly awesome to actually, my residence is with God. That's, that's, that's where you mail your, my packages, your packages to, that's where I live, to dwell. It's, it's what David cried out for. This one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't just want to go there once in a while, I want to live there. Because in the house of God is everything, everything we could possibly want. That it's amazing that God, when he sent his son, he delivered us to his home address. He, he, he isn't going to give us um, servants' quarters or put us out in the stables with hired hands. He's not going to do that. He's not going to put us at a separate dining table for the, for the servants. The whole timbre of the scripture is that Christ died so that we could eat at his table. So that we could live at his address. So that we would live in the confines of his protection and the fullness of his love. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. 
That's the ultimate gift of compassion. It's not only to release us from our helpless and powerless state, but to make us um, dwellers with the Most High. And that's where we're headed. Some of us already know that, that we're no longer enemies, we're no longer outsiders, we're family, sons, daughters who have an address. And that's his compassion, is to take slaves and make them sons, and to take paupers and make them princes. That's the the compassion of the Lord. That's what this, this table represents. And his compassion continues right now in this room. His compassion continues because it sustains your faith. His compassion continues because you can still rejoice even though you feel broken. That your compa- his compassion continues because you still take more steps. And you keep going despite the fact that sometimes you feel like you're going to give out. All of that is the ongoing, renewing compassion of the Lord. New every morning. Compassion, in my thinking, is part of the center heart of God. That's how important it is. It's not external. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious. God, who showed the ultimate compassion in his son and offers us everything in and through him. And I'll tell you, when, when that sinks into your heart, we talked a little bit about Tozer last week, looking at his life. When the Spirit of God takes the truth, he makes it real. And compassion becomes not just an abstract word, but a realized truth. That God's compassion for me never fails. This is what he'd released me from. And this is what he's taking me to. Then it fundamentally alters your life. A woman in Luke. Who was forgiven much. Learned to love much. Because she understood the depth of compassion. As she washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And broke an alabaster bottle. It alters your life. When you grasp compassion, when it sinks into your heart, it should cause within you this spontaneous sense of gratitude and joy and worship and praise. That I was once in prison and you have made me free. That I once was blind and now I see. I once was lost and now I'm found. And that's true. And that enables the heart to worship because you grasp compassion. It also comforts, comforts the heart. You know, when I think of the Lord's compassion, and this might be a bit rude or crude, but I picture someone with a flat tire on the freeway who doesn't have a spare, and they're waving for someone to stop, and people keep coming by. That when I think about God, I think he is the guy who always stops. He always puts on the brakes and always helps his people. Always. He never passes by, not once. That he's the kind of father who when he hears his baby crying in the next room, he just doesn't stay there, but he gets up and he comes and checks on the child. Every time. That's the compassion, consistent compassion of God. Now, his compassion may not come to us in ways that we expect or necessarily want, but we trust that the sovereign wisdom of God applies his compassion in the way that he knows is best. But we trust, however it comes, that God's compassion is always with me. He never removes it. And everything I'm going through, ultimately his compassion is involved. And I trust it. And that brings a level of comfort to the human heart. So it should cause worship. It should comfort God's people. But it should also, and it should be the motive for us, extending compassion to others. 
God kept telling his people in Israel, you show compassion to the stranger and to the sojourner and to the widow and to the orphan because that's where you were when I found you. And when you grasp in an experiential way by the Spirit of God through the truth, God's compassion, then it really motivates us, I think, to begin to share that with other people and enter into this, this great, what is, seems to be this movement that God is doing in our community of compassion And I just hope, and I hope you hope and pray, that God continues this. Not just continues, but that each of us figures out, how is it that I'm going to use my spirit gift for the continuation of showing the compassion heart of God to other people? Because that's really how people are going to see the compassion of the Lord, is people touching people, and people tutoring people, and people feeding people, and then when opportunity arises to be able to share, hey, you know what, let me tell you about the ultimate spotlight of compassion when compassion triumphed over sin and talk about Jesus. You know, there's a way that, that people offer compassion that proceeds from human strength and pride. And there is a way where compassion is offered from a position of emptiness. And a Christian who recognizes that apart from grace, he is completely powerless and helpless. The only compassion we extend to others is compassion we've already received. That the only words of comfort we can give are words we received. That there is nothing that I have that I have not been given. So ultimately, when a Christian gives compassion, it does not exalt himself, but the one who gave it through him. That's a very different mindset as far as compassion for Christian people. We do not proceed from a position of human strength as if I have the ability to meet that need. No, Apart from grace, I have no ability, and everything I have, he's given me as a compassionate gift, and so I'm simply re-giving what he's already given me. So it's always offered from a helpless disposition, because God is, and God alone, his grace is what gives us um, meaning, purpose, and riches. I can't think of a better uh, topic through which to come to the Lord's table. That God himself gave us bread from heaven. Um, And that bread is the living bread, who is Jesus Christ. And we've placed it in the center of the room, just to break things up a little bit also. This is a smaller group, and and, uh, it really symbolizes that that Jesus and his death are at the center of our our community. And so as you you come, and again, this is really for believers, obviously. If you're going to take, this is a sign of faith, that you're actually taking the bread, what God has provided for starving souls, and the cup, then it really you should be a follower of Christ. If not, then just, you know, you can sit where you're at. But, but come when John, after I pray and John, John um, plays some music, but I'd like to encourage you, sometimes we just kind of take it without really worshiping in that moment, is that the bread was meant to be tasted, and I think in some ways slowly taken, so that we can remember the compassion and we can pray God will you please just if, if I don't feel your compassion will you help me to as I taste the bread that reminds me of the ultimate act of compassion and spend the moments as you taste it worshipping and being comforted by the fact that God's compassion will never leave you and the minute also as you taste it and as you drink the blood that was poured out for you may it be a reminder and perhaps um, will spawn some kind of a thought How is it, Lord, that you want me now to take this bread outside? How is it that you want me to show the compassion shown to me to others? So 
I guess I wanted you to just take it in your mouth and, and I want you to, to soak over it a little bit and to allow your heart to commune with the Spirit of God and, and uh, let Him comfort you and let Him show you His compassion and let Him remind you of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the joy of Christ, and, um, and who we are to be in our community. Let me pray for it and then, then you come as you feel led. Father in heaven, I just want to ask that you would bless this time. Um, we know you've called us to compassion. But we can't be compassionate to others unless we first receive compassion from you in a helpless and a powerless state. So I pray that we come to this table empty, um, but also with tremendous faith that you are here and your spirit wants us to commune, commune with Jesus through this and to know the level and depth of compassion and to know we stand forgiven and to rejoice in the fact that your compassion will never leave us nor forsake us. And we just cling to that, Lord. So will you take this time and and, um, allow us to commune with you as we partake of the bread and the cup in Christ's name. Amen.